Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. If you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. As you're turning there, you probably will recognize the date, December 7th, 1941. It was said that that would be a date that would live in infamy, and indeed it has. It was the day that the Japanese army attacked Pearl Harbor. In the aftermath of that attack, America quickly mobilized for war. One young soldier that was thrown into action was Sergeant Jake DeShazer. Because of his hatred for the Japanese in the aftermath of that attack and his desire for revenge, he volunteered immediately for an opportunity to strike back, to get revenge for Pearl Harbor. And so he was one of the Doolittle Bombers. If you're not familiar with this story, it was a group of bombers that took off from aircraft carriers with the purpose of uh, making a bombing run on Japan, something that was previously thought impossible. The problem, though, was that DeShazer's crew didn't have enough fuel to get their plane over mainland China, which was the plan, and so they had to abandon their plane over Japan, and he and his crew was captured. For the next several years, his Japanese captors made his life unbearable. He was tortured, he was waterboarded, he was starved, He was exposed to rats and to lice that would gnaw his face when he lacked the strength to fight them off. He was then transferred to a prison where he spent two years in solitary confinement. Where he was continually tortured and beaten mercilessly. He and the other surviving prisoners, once they were transferred, began to beg their captors for books. And eventually, a copy of the Bible found its way into Jake's hands. At that point, Jake was not a Christian, but he quickly read through the Bible several times and he actually began to memorize large passages, including the Sermon on the Mount. And on June 8th, 1944, DeShazer, in that cold, solitary cell, beaten, bloodied, emaciated, trusted Christ. But that didn't mean his troubles were over. He continued to be subjected to torture and abuse. But he tried to put into practice the words that he had read, that he had memorized, that we're going to read today. Love your enemies. Even as they were torturing him, DeShazer tried to respond to his Japanese captors with respect. After the war, DeShazer trained and eventually came back to Japan to serve the people that had tortured him as a missionary. His story was printed and widely distributed there in pamphlets, and one pamphlet found its way into the hands of Commander Mitsu Fushida. Fushida had actually led the attack on Pearl Harbor that had so enraged DeShazer to begin with. He was the one that had given the infamous command, Torah, Torah, Torah. Fushida had also heard stories of how Japanese prisoners had been treated in American prisoner of war camps. 
and how they were treated with care and with love, particularly by one young nurse named Peggy Covell. Peggy's parents had actually been missionaries themselves before the war to Japan. And once things started ramping up, once it looked like hostility was imminent, Peggy was evacuated, but Peggy's parents stayed. And once war broke out, they were captured and brutally beheaded by Japanese soldiers. Peggy volunteered to be a nurse serving in one of these prison camps, not because she wanted to exact revenge, but because she was convinced that her parents as Christians would have forgiven and loved their executioners even in the moment of their death. And so she volunteered so she could treat these captured Japanese soldiers with love and care. And so moved by DeShazer's story, moved by the stories of Peggy Covell, and by the words of Jesus on the cross, this hardened commander, Fushida, trusted Christ. Later, he and DeShazer, sworn enemies, men on opposite sides of the conflict, actually met and would travel around Japan and preach together. And under their preaching, thousands trusted Christ. I can think of no greater examples of loving your enemies than the convergence of these three stories, three lives, three different people who had no business knowing each other, caring for one another, let alone loving one another, than Mitsu Fushida, Jake DeShazer, and Peggy Covell. Three lives transformed by the words of Jesus. Love your enemies. So I want to begin with this example because as we read this text and as we talk about this morning, loving your enemies... I want to preemptively remove any objections that you may have to walking in obedience to these commands. I don't think anyone in this room has experienced a level of hurt, a level of harm committed against Jake DeShazer, someone who was tortured in a Japanese prison camp. I don't think anyone in here have had your parents beheaded by soldiers. And so I think it's safe to assume that this story contains more extreme examples of enemies, of hatred, of animosity than what you're going to encounter in your day-to-day lives. So if they are able to walk in transformed obedience to the commands of Christ, then none of us have any excuse. And so then let us read together. What Jesus has to say about loving your enemies. If you're able this morning, I would ask that you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's turn together in prayer. 
Lord, we come before You today acknowledging that that these words that we have just read, like so many others throughout the Sermon on the Mount, are hard. They are challenging. They, They find their way into our living rooms, around our dinner tables. And they convict because we are prone to slander. We are prone to gossip. We are prone, Lord, to hatred. But instead of hatred, you've called us to a different path, a better way. You've called us to love those that we would count as our enemies. Those that have wronged us. Those that have persecuted us. Those that have slandered us. Those that have gossiped about us. Those that have betrayed our trust. Those people that we just don't really like. Lord, we're supposed to love them. Lord, this may be the most difficult of all your commands and instructions that we've considered so far in the Sermon on the Mount. And indeed, you end this section by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, we cannot attain to that standard of perfection without the transforming power of your redemptive love in our own hearts. Without your Holy Spirit guiding us and directing us. Without the perfections of Christ applied to us. And so we pray, Lord, that as those perfections are applied to us, as they are counted our very own through Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, that you would enable us to love as you have loved. Lord, show us what that looks like today through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, these words that we have just read conclude what might be considered the second part of the Sermon on the Mount. The first part that we considered earlier was the Beatitudes. And the second part is where Jesus corrects the Jewish misunderstanding of how to apply the law. This started when he tells us, beginning in verse 17, that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because by the time that Jesus came, the Jews had taken what Moses had given them, what God had given them, how God had instructed them to live, and the Jews had twisted it to mean things that it never was intended to mean. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, you've heard it been taught by the Pharisees, this is how you're supposed to live, but I'm going to say to you, I'm going to correct for you their misapplication of the law. This is Jesus' final and perhaps most difficult application of the law in his sermon. And he begins by correcting the Pharisees' misunderstanding of who we are to love. Who we are to love. This is where the Pharisees had gotten it all wrong. And this is an essential question. It's a question that the Jews clearly struggled with. It's a question that we still struggle with today if we're honest. Who am I to love? God's law was clear. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now this specific command comes from Leviticus <coughs> chapter 19, verse 18. There... Giving the law that he had received from God, Moses says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. Jesus himself will identify this in his ministry as the second and great commandment only behind love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is one in which most all of the law could be summarized. All of those instructions that that we read in the Old Testament about how we're to act toward one another, about how we're to treat other people, if we would just do this, all of those laws would take care of themselves. I mean, think about it. Would you murder someone if you love them as you loved yourself? That's the extreme example, but of course you would not. Would you steal from someone that you loved as you loved yourself? Of course not. Would you cheat on your spouse if you loved them the way that you loved yourself? Will you covet what your neighbor has if you love them the way that you love yourself? Of course not. And so all sins, all crimes against other people are ultimately a result of us loving ourselves more. Of us putting ourselves First, of us considering someone else to be less important, less worthy of love, honor, and respect than us. As soon as we begin to consider them less than, we are then able to sin against them. And so all of the laws in the Old Testament that have to do with how we treat other people, we would keep those laws if we would simply keep this one, to love other people as we love ourselves. It sums up all the laws regarding how we treat others. But you see, the Jews had found a workaround, as we've seen in all of these other laws that have to deal with adultery and anger, murder, oaths. And that workaround was found in the definition of neighbor. You see, the Jews defined only their fellow Jews as neighbors. And so everyone else, everyone besides their fellow Jews was considered an outsider, an enemy. And not only were you not obligated to love your enemies, you were actually obligated to hate them. That's what Jesus says here. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that second part isn't in Leviticus. You won't find that in God's law. That's what the Pharisees had added by implication. If you're to love your neighbor, well then your enemy, you're supposed to hate. You're obligated to act with hostility toward those who are outside. It was not wrong. In fact, it was encouraged if you were a Jew to lie to Gentiles, to deceive them, to seek to do them harm. The Jews referred to the Gentiles around them and even the half-blooded Jewish Samaritans as dogs. Most devout Jews, whenever they were traveling, if they had to travel through the country of Samaria... They would travel around it, adding miles to their journey, (coughs) rather than taking the straight road through it. And if they did have to walk through it, once they crossed the borders, once they were about to to walk from Samaria and cross back into uh, Israel, they would take off their sandals and smack them together to make sure they beat all the Samaritan dirt off of their shoes so they didn't defile the land of Israel with Samaritan dirt. Now that's contempt, right? That, that's hatred, that's animosity. It's fitting then that when Jesus was asked this very question, who is my neighbor? 
Who is my neighbor? In Luke chapter 10. Or, in other words, when when Jesus was asked this question, what he was really being asked was, who am I supposed to love? Or, Or where can I draw the line? Jesus, give me the categories. Give me the people that I have to love so that I can then write these other people off and, and have an excuse to not love them. Tell me where the line is supposed to be drawn. Who is my neighbor? He responds with the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells them of this hated enemy who came, and he was actually the one who demonstrated what it looked like to love your neighbors yourself. The Samaritan was the one who acted with love and hospitality toward the Jew who had been beaten and robbed. It was this story that Jesus used to show the right understanding of this law. Who is my neighbor? Your enemy is your neighbor. The person that you don't like, that's your neighbor. When God says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, there isn't anyone excluded. Just like Mr. Rogers, right? Everybody come and won't you be my neighbor? Everyone is welcome. The net is cast far and wide. So that you cannot get around this commandment by trying to limit or redefine who might or might not be your neighbor. Your neighbor may have a different skin color than you. Your neighbor might vote differently than you do. Your neighbor might speak a different language. They might eat different kinds of food. Your neighbor might do meth. Your neighbor might keep having babies out of wedlock. Your neighbor might be married to someone of the same sex. Your neighbor might even root for the Louisville Cardinals. But guess what? Nothing about them releases us from our obligation to love them. So then, how are we to love them? If we understand first, who am I to love... That net includes everyone, right? There's nobody that, that falls outside the bounds of who we are to love. The, the next question is, well, how are we to love them? How are we to love them? Well, first, notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say that love gives approval of all that they do. Loving someone doesn't mean that we have to give approval of all that they do. We can exercise love towards someone while still grieving the decisions that they're making that's taking them down a destructive path. It's why we are able to love the drug abuser. Why we are able to love the person that has chosen to pursue relationships that fall outside the boundaries of God's word. Jesus didn't approve of the Samaritan woman living unmarried with a man That wasn't her husband. He didn't approve of how she worshipped. But guess what? He still loved her when he met her at the well. He still loved her and he extended grace and hope to her. He extended to her an opportunity to have her life transformed and to be made right with him. Her life was changed because Jesus loved her. Even though he didn't give approval to everything that she did. And so in the same way, we can love someone without approving of all that they do. As a matter of fact, to love someone often means that we must not approve of what they do. We must not affirm them 
and their wrong decisions. And whenever they're making a decision to pursue something, to pursue a lifestyle, to pursue a sin that falls outside the boundaries of God's word, our culture says the loving thing to do is to let them do that. Live and let live. But God's word says that path will lead them to destruction. The only loving thing for us to do would be to stand in front of them and say, please stop. Please do not go down this path. Please repent and pursue what God says is good and right for you in his word. Sometimes love requires us to confront. So love doesn't demand that we approve. Jesus doesn't say that, but also Jesus doesn't say that we must wait until we feel warm affection for them. I think often we try to get out of this command because we reduce love to a feeling. Okay, Love, in particular the way that Jesus is talking about love here, it doesn't equate to a feeling. And so if we don't feel love towards someone, we shrug our shoulders and say, well, shucks, I tried. Sorry, I just can't I just can't love them. But Jesus doesn't say anything here at all about our feelings. There's some people we're naturally going to like better than others. That's okay. The question is, how do we treat the ones that we don't naturally resonate with? How do we treat those that that, that we just we butt heads with? We consider our enemies. C.S. Lewis says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor, speaking about feelings. He says, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one, we find one of the great secrets. He says, when, you, when we are behaving as if we loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. And so the principle that that C.S. Lewis is talking about there and that I think Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is that regardless of how you feel towards someone, you need to act with love toward them. Your actions need to communicate your love. And so Jesus gives us three specific ways, three specific good turns that we can do toward those people that we might not naturally feel affection for. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. This is not something where Jesus is saying, only do these things and nothing else. But if you do these three things, if you commit to taking those people that you are at odds with and doing these three things for them, then your heart will begin to be oriented toward loving them. You will go from an adversarial position to a neighborly position. And so if you start here and you master these three things toward your enemies and you can't figure out what to do next, come and talk to me and we'll figure it out. Okay, we'll figure out what the next steps are. But I think I think this will be enough for most of us to try to bite off right now. These three things. Jesus says, first, pray for them. (coughs) Pardon me. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those that would seek to do you harm. That that would mock you, that would belittle you, that would harm you. Pray for their good. 
Pray for their health. Pray for their conversion if they aren't a believer. You see, I'm convinced that you cannot dislike someone or you cannot continue to dislike someone if you are praying for their good. If you're praying that God would bless them, if you're praying that God would save them, because you're recognizing their need. You're recognizing that just like you, they are or were a sinner separated from God in need of His grace and forgiveness. You're you're, you're realizing that like you once were, they are now slaves to Satan. They are under His influence. And fellow slaves, once freed, don't go back and kick those that are still in slavery. No, they try to free them too. They try to rescue them out of the bondage that they were once in. And so as believers, this is what we're trying to do. This is why we pray for them. This is something you can do today. And it won't cost you a dime, by the way. Think of of the last person that you had negative thoughts about. Think of that person that your family lampooned around your Thanksgiving table. The person they mocked, the person they talked down about. Today, maybe before you leave this room, come up here and kneel down before God and pray for that person. Pray for their good. Pray for their conversion. Pray for their freedom from their addiction. Pray for God to save them. That's love. Jesus says, even those that would persecute you, those that would harm you, pray for them. Second, Jesus says we can meet their physical needs. He says, for he makes, he says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God meets our physical needs. He meets the physical needs of his enemies. He meets the physical needs of the righteous. We can do the same. We can't make the rain fall. We can't make the sun shine. But we're supposed to follow His pattern. If we know of a need that our enemy has, we can meet that need. We could give them a ride. We could make them a plate of cookies. Whatever it might be. We can meet a physical need. Teenagers. You can invite them to sit with you at lunch. You can break the gossip chain by deleting the text message about them. Or asking your friend not to say mean things about that person. We all can, can find ways to meet needs of someone that we are opposed to. And when we begin to meet these needs, again, it's very difficult for us to remain angry with them. It's very difficult for us to remain in a position of hostility, in a disposition of hostility toward them if we are meeting their physical needs. Most of the time, people treat us with hostility because they have an underlying problem or a need that is not being met. And so if we can find a way to minister to that need, that problem, not only are we walking in obedience to Christ, but we may find a way to take an enemy and turn them into a friend. Or take someone that's enslaved to the bondage of Satan and turn them into a son of God by ministering to their needs. Finally, Jesus says you can greet them. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us. 
We may wonder what Jesus is talking about here. He says, and if you uh, greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? And so we're not just to greet, we're not just to show public affirmation to those that we jive with, to our brothers, to those that we connect with, our friends, but we are to publicly affirm, to publicly greet even our enemies. Because I think we're so good at giving that little cold shoulder, giving that little slight to the person that we're at odds with, to ignoring them. We may not say anything hostile to them. We may not confront them. We may not even badmouth badmouth them, but we sure are good at ignoring them. We don't like them, and so we're not going to talk to them if we don't have to. But Jesus says, no, I want you to greet them. Don't avoid them. Give them a warm smile, a big hug, a firm handshake. Because when you do that, what you're doing, you're acknowledging that they are worthy of dignity as a fellow image bearer of God. You know, many people just want to be recognized. Many people just want to know that you know they exist. That they're worthy of dignity. That you value them. And so this greeting goes a long way toward love. Over the past decade, we've seen a rash, an an epidemic of mass shootings. And politicians will talk about all the different ways, what, what gun control laws do we need to enact, what preventative measures do we need to enact. But when you look at the people carrying these out, what, what do they have in common? They're angry young men. And often they are alone, isolated. Just this past week, there's a, a Walmart employee took out his grievances on his coworkers. What might be different what, what, what might begin to change if we began to seek out the loners, to seek out the isolated, and to walk up and, and shake their hand and give them a big hug and say, listen, man, I see you. Tell me what your week's been like. What's going on in your life? What, what, what can I do for you? How, have you got any needs that I can meet? How can I pray for you? think if we began to do that, if Christians in mass began to just simply greet the isolated, the lonely, the adversaries, we might begin to see healing throughout our society. Jesus warns us in this to not be exclusive in our love, to not limit who we show love to. We don't have to feel necessarily warmth and affection for them at the outset. That, that may not happen. If you're waiting to get a warm, fuzzy feeling for someone before you go up and greet them, before you get, begin to pray for them, you might as well keep waiting. It's not going to happen. Don't let that get in the way of you walking in obedience to Christ. He intends this for our good and for the good of our society, for the good of the community in which we live. For the good of our church. Of course he points out there's going to be people that we naturally get along with. But it's no sacrifice to be kind to those people. There's people even in this room. I guarantee you there's people that that each of you when you walk in this room. There's people that you seek out. Because you like them. 
They're in your Sunday school class. You know them. You talk to them. You, whenever you talk, it just clicks. You have a rapport with them. There's other people you maybe haven't spoken to in a year. Right? You don't know what's going on in their lives because you're just different. We're, we're naturally inclined to make these distinctions. But Jesus says, I want you to actively work, actively seek to break down those barriers. To break down these distinctions. To, to go from having enemies and adversaries to, to having friends, neighbors, brothers, sisters. To love your enemies. That's something that only a follower of Jesus can truly do. I told you earlier about Mitsu Fushida and Jake DeShazer. Mitsu Fushida, he was a hero in Japan after Pearl Harbor. He was even greeted by the emperor of Japan. That's to be expected. What's unexpected is for Jake DeShazer to greet him, to embrace him, to love him. And for Mitsu Fushida to love him back. If you're kind and loving to people like you, to people you get along with, you haven't accomplished anything. That's no proof that you're a follower of Jesus. Anyone can do that. But how do you love those that you've got no reason to love? Those that can't offer you anything in return. How do you love those people that are different from you? The people that mistreat you. That's where the mark of a true Christian is seen. Which brings us to our final point today. What is love's result? Well, Jesus points out a couple of things in this passage. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, don't get confused. This doesn't mean that if you just simply love other people well enough, that that's what makes you a Christian. No, what Jesus is saying, it's only the Christian that's able to love people this way. It's only the sons of God that are enabled to love in the same way that God has first loved us. You see, God isn't asking us to do anything He hasn't already done for us. The Bible says that we were God's enemies. We were opposed to Him. We were sinful. We were rebellious. We were attempting to usurp Him as God. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he listened to the voice of the serpent whenever the serpent enticed him to be like God instead of submitting to God. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. We have been opposed to God. We have been His enemies. Romans chapter 5 tells us though this good news. In verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Paul doesn't paint a pretty picture of us. He says we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were God's enemies. And it's in that condition, it's in that state, that God sent His Son to die for our sins. 
You see, Jesus didn't die for you because you deserved it. Jesus didn't die for His friends. For the people that had shown Him great affection and love. He died so that He could make enemies into His friends. Even as He died, what did He pray? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. The soldiers that had beaten him, that had spat on him, that had mocked him, that had pressed a crown of thorns down into his head, that had ripped the flesh from his back until he was an unrecognizable bloody mess. The soldiers that had roughly handled him, that had taken his arms and stretched them out and nailed them to a cross of wood. Jesus wanted God to apply his grace to even those men. Jesus said, Father, love them. Forgive them. Apply my death to their account. He loved those Roman soldiers even as He loves us. We have gone from being enemies of God to being adopted into His family based on what Jesus did for us on the cross. What wonderful grace God has shown us. What remarkable, transforming love that He has poured out, that He has lavished on us. But here's how this applies to us. If we have been shown that kind of love, what's preventing us from showing it to others? How selfish, how cold-hearted do we have to be in order to hold grudges and dislike others? Believers, you ought not have enemies. You ought not have grudges. Sure, there may be people that dislike you. There may be people that hold grudges against you. You may not be able to help that. But those things have no place in your life. You've been reconciled to God while you were His enemy. And if that's the case for you, then you must Seek to love your enemies. Jesus says that it's when you do this that it is clear that you are indeed a son of your father. This is what God does. You love like he loves. And that's what demonstrates that he has transformed your heart. But he drives this point home in a powerful way in verse 48. He says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, if we're able to love like this, this is the epitome of perfection. How can we be perfect? It's only when we start to love others like God has loved us. We can't attain this. We can't be successful at this by just gritting our teeth and trying really hard. Right? We, we, we know those people that, that make it impossible to love them in our natural state. In our fleshly state. We we may be charitable. We may want to give to charity. We may want to help others. But when it comes to the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. The kind of self-sacrificial love. We cannot do that in our natural state. We can only find strength to do this. After you have discovered Christ's love for you. After you have recognized what you were. That you were an enemy of God. 
And Christ loved you. Christ died for you while you were His enemy. If that's true of us, what can we do for our enemies? If your heart is full of bitterness and anger toward others, it might be that you've never experienced God's transforming love for you. If you're ready to experience that love today, if you're ready to go from being an enemy of God to being His son, His beloved daughter, then in just a minute, I would invite you to come and let me know that you're ready to experience that love. And I'll talk with you, I'll share with you through God's Word how that can be true of you. But maybe you've already been reconciled. Maybe you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've already been forgiven of your sins. But you know that you're not walking in obedience to this command. You know that there's hatred, there's anger, there's hostility in your heart. I'm going to ask you in just a minute to make a bold commitment of obedience. Think about that person you don't like. You've probably already thought of them two or three times during this sermon. Right? Think about the person you've talked about. The person you've badmouthed to your spouse. The co-worker that just gets on every last nerve. The person you're holding a grudge against. The person that's wronged you in the past, that's lied to you, that's betrayed you, violated your trust, stolen from you, or harmed someone that you love. I want you to take the next few minutes. I want you to pray for that person. It won't cost you a dime. Pray for that person. You can come up here. You can sit in your pew. But I want you to put into obedience right now what Jesus tells us to do. And then when you wake up tomorrow, do it again. And the next day, do it again. And then find even more ways To love them. And what you will find is that pretty soon you don't have enemies even anymore. You have neighbors. You have friends. And you're loving the way that Jesus tells us to love. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. It is a hard and challenging word because, Lord, I confess, I am prone. I am prone, Lord, to be hostile to those unlike me. I am prone, Lord, to to make lines of demarcation between myself and others. And then to love them less. To love myself more. Lord, I have an unbalanced love. But your love, O God, is not unbalanced. You have demonstrated your great love for us in order to see Your own glory magnified and exalted on the earth, You have sent Your Son to die in our place, to bear the wrath reserved for us. And so I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who still maintains their position as Your enemy, who is separated from You, who is walking in disobedience to You and Your Word, I pray, Lord, that today they would come and be reconciled to You. But Lord, if there's one of your children here, if there's one of your children who has experienced this great love and who recognizes that they are not loving others the way that they ought to, which if we're honest is probably all of us, I pray, Lord, that they would take the first step today of just praying, just praying for that adversary, of just praying for that enemy, just praying for that person they don't like. Lord, help us to walk in faithful obedience 
to your word when it calls us to love others in the same way that you have first loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.